Hitchcock breezes through a tongue-in-cheek, nightmarish plot with a lightness of touch that's equaled by a charming performance from Grant. That's from Dave Calhoun of Time Out. We're talking about North by Northwest. That's right. I'd like to round it up and say it's the 60th anniversary. It actually came out in 1959. So, hey, the 61st anniversary. 61 with an asterisk. Why not that? One of the movies we're talking about here on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. Please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. I just saw a scathing review. I'll read that in just a second. Before we get rolling, though, please do check out Ray Seahorn. The interview we did with her, she's unbelievable from Better Call Saul. I've uh, been working on the interview for a while, and it came through last week. So hopefully you saw it pop up on um, you know, on your subscription here. And she was great. So go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Check out Ray Seahorn. 30 minutes of her. She plays Kim Wexler on Better Call Saul. They just had the season finale last night. It was terrific as expected. One more season of Better Call Saul to go. And uh, I think you'll really like, even if you don't even watch the show, I think I think you'll appreciate her insights into uh, into acting and what's going on with the small screen. A couple other movies to review as well. We're going way back because this is the 125th episode of Cinephile. Whoever thought that would happen? 78 episodes at ESPN, and now with Cadence 13, we have the rest of those. So my thanks, of course, to to Pete Genesini and Dan Stanzik, Rick Passmore, Claire Atkins, all my friends from ESPN, and of course my man Joe and Sean Cherry and everybody helping us out now, John McDermott, Chris Corcoran, everyone who's allowed us to continue here at Cadence 13. It's been a blast. So for 125th episode, not only North by Northwest, but a couple of other movies from Peter Bogdanovich, who's a director who I know but didn't know his movies very well. So What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. Those will be reviews. Also some news involving Darren Aronofsky and his chance at making Batman, why Paris is doing so well on Hulu, and a Mount Rushmore child performances because Tatum O'Neill won an Oscar for Paper Moon. She's just a kid. So how about the Mount Rushmore child performances? Also Total Recall, the 2016 Oscars, which are the movies of 2015, and our special guest, Johnny Smith, who is a history professor at Georgia Tech who specializes in sports and history. He's got a new book out, which is terrific. It's called War Fever, Boston, Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War. Talking all about the pandemic of 1918, and Johnny's a really eloquent guy and very smart and passionate, so I think you'll really enjoy the interview as much as I think you'll enjoy the book. A couple of reviews here coming up. Uh, Doc Lou Iowa here in Apple Podcasts. Midwest Humor. You referred to Jay Leno as Midwest Humor. He is from Boston. Letterman is from Indiana. I actually saw Leno in the early 80s doing stand-up when I was in college in D.C. Hilarious. Thank you for the point. Uh, Jay is from Boston, actually from Andover, Massachusetts to be specific. What I meant by Midwest Humor is his humor would always play well in the Midwest, meaning it was kind of square and soft and down the middle, and Letterman's humor would always resonate in New York and Los Angeles, you know, just a different style and different sensibility. Whenever they would look at the ratings, as a matter of fact, for The Tonight Show versus Late Show with David Letterman, Jay always owned um, the hearts of those in the heartland, which is why I referred to it as Midwest humor. Uh, but thank you for clarifying that. Also, the bad guy, 127, a fun, informative, and entertaining pod. Love the Total Recall and Mount Rushmore segment. Is always good for a quick argument starter. Always great reviews. One criticism, does Joe say anything before he says, I completely agree? All right, fine. Joe will, uh, Joe will think of other things to say then. Uh, and this one, we just got crushed. W.C. Dwight Stone from 19 hours ago. Liberal left-wing views. One star. Uh, again, I rank my movies at a four-way police. Please do give us a five-star review. Unlike W.C. Dwight Stone, one star. Shake my head why so many people like to bring politics in their podcasts, etc. Great way to eliminate 40% plus of their audience. I don't think we bring politics into the podcast with the exception of last week, in which we were talking about last week tonight with John Oliver. And I even said, even if you don't share his politics... I think that he's still an entertaining performer. So I, I disagree with you, W.C. Dwight Stone. 
I don't think I bring politics into the podcast every week, but Joe, your thoughts? I mean, I feel we've done a pretty good job at towing the line, but I completely agree with you on it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I said, with my buddy Joe, his sense of humor, he's going to take that and take that to the bank. All right. Uh, thank you again for the reviews. Please help offset W.C. Dwight Stone by putting a better review. Uh, you know, everyone's got a blind spot, right? No matter who you are, no matter what star you are, athletes, performers, there's always something you haven't done. So I've got a few blind spots, which I have to admit to. And Mark Simon, who is a loyal listener of the podcast, always offering feedback, great guy. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram. I believe he's reading uh, baseball books to people right now. Uh, he had said to me, what's a good movie to recommend? Because he'd watched The Stranger, which I appreciate that Mark took to heart my recommendation on Netflix. He loved it. Orson Welles, terrific. What else you got for me? So I said, okay, you should watch Out of the Past. It's a great Robert Mitchum film noir. He liked that as well. So he said, I believe his mother recommended to him North by Northwest. An honest admission, I've never seen North by Northwest. So I said, okay, I've got to go see that because I can't lie to Mark. He will now listen to this and then text me because he will notice. I did not say, oh, it's a great film. I just was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So I rectified the fact I had never seen it. And perfect timing because my man Ben Mankiewicz and, and Turner Classic Movies, they're doing their virtual fest and they aired North by Northwest. And even better, my man Joe, who had not seen it, also saw it over the weekend. So we're all locked in on this 1959 film. If you've never seen it, want to know what it's about? The classic suspense film finds New York City ad executive Roger O. Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, pursued by ruthless spy Philip Van Damme. That's right. I kept thinking of Jean-Claude Van Damme every time they kept calling James Mason's character Van Damme. Thornhill is mistaken for a government agent. Hunted relentlessly by Van Damme's associates, the harried Thornhill ends up on a cross-country journey meeting the beautiful and mysterious Eve Kendall, Eva Marie Saint along the way. Soon Van Damme's henchmen close in on Thornhill, resulting in a number of iconic action sequences. When it comes to old movies, you have to always think about accessibility. You know, meaning if I try to watch Barry Lyndon, which I've tried to watch a couple times, I can never get through it. Scorsese loves it. You know, Natural Light, Kubrick Classic. I just can't do it. It's just too damn boring. So in the case of North by Northwest, someone says, well, okay, I'm not really into old movies, black and white, but this is incredibly accessible. In fact, I would say this might be Hitchcock's most accessible movie. If I lined up North by Northwest and Vertigo and Rear Window and The Birds and Psycho, I'd say, okay, if I was, let's say, an 18-year-old who was not seeing these movies, I actually think North by Northwest might be the one that translates the most because of the fact it's just a great suspense thriller. It's got really good pacing. There's no wasted dialogue. Performances are excellent. I mean, Cary Grant, I always think he's British because he's got that imperious, haughty manner about him, but he is a, clearly a man of elegance in movies like The Philadelphia Story, but here he is, that innocent man on the run, and he's got a great sense of humor. Early on after, you know, he's snatched up, he says, not that I mind the occasional case of abduction, but I have tickets to the theater tonight, so if you'll just let me go. James Mason, always great, love him in The Verdict, and even Marie Saint, I mean, talk about a heart stopper. You can see how any man would fall in love with her. But it is those action sequences. The famous one, of course, is the... Um, it's even the plane, the crop duster plane. And um, he's stuck in the middle of nowhere, Cary Grant's character, and another guy's there getting a ride on a bus. And he looks at the crop duster plane and goes, oh, that's weird. It's dusting crops, but there's no crops there. And then, boom, the plane comes towards him. And as I tweeted, Adnan S. Ferg, Cinephile Pod, you can follow us. You know, that's one of the most timeless shots ever is the crop duster plane swooping in on Cary Grant. That whole sequence is tremendous. It's only a few minutes long, but so suspenseful, so well edited and masterfully shot by Alfred Hitchcock that it's still suspenseful to this day. And then the ending takes place at Mount Rushmore. Now, they didn't actually shoot, of course, at Mount Rushmore, just the uh, exterior shots. And then after that, they built some sets. But... Really cool sequences there, and 
you know, you just look at the inventiveness. Even the script by Ernest Lehman is so good. Uh, at one point, he's talking to Martin Landau. That's right, Martin Landau playing the bad guy. He looks rather creepy in the movie. And Mason says to him, after they realize that Eva Marie Saint is playing them, she's actually uh, an agent, he says, this matter is best handled from a great height over water. And before it goes to from a great height, the camera tilts up. You know, Hitchcock, asked my buddy Tim Kirkshin, who loves North by Northwest, the high angles always imply something about impending doom. And even the final shot, not to give it away, spoiler alert, 61 years later, once they're together, Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, you know, they start kissing and then it cuts to a shot of a train going through a tunnel. And that was Hitchcock's way of having them make love. That's right. Think of the phallic image of a train going through a tunnel. And he said, this way I can get it past the sensor boards. But what he's saying is that they're copulating. So, I mean, there's lots of just smart winks and nods. And, and Hitchcock himself is so cheeky. And I just think it's such an entertaining movie. North by Northwest, Four Maple Leafs. Finally, my blind spot has been taken care of. I saw a great movie over the weekend. Joe, what did you think of this Hitchcock classic? I thought it completely holds up. The master of suspense, the way in 1959 he was able to get the crop duster to chase down Cary Grant in the field. I found out that that was all done in studio after that. Found out later, Adnan, that um, Jimmy Stewart really wanted the lead. And so uh, Hitchcock didn't want him to play. He wanted Cary Grant because he thought he would play the role better. So he delayed production of the movie until Jimmy Stewart had signed on to a different picture before offering Jimmy Stewart the role, tongue-in-cheek, knowing he would have to turn it down. <laughs> That's great, man. That's a good little nugget out of you. Hitchcock famously says, actors are like cattle. Had no respect for actors. Didn't think they were important. Everything was about the director. Everything was about himself. I can appreciate his ego. I think he's wrong about diminishing actors, but that's interesting that he wanted Grant over Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, and what did you think of the ending? I know you just mentioned the the train going into the tunnel, but overall, as a whole, it goes from like the climax to the ending super abruptly. So what did you make of that? Yeah, I was a little surprised with that. You're right. That shot of her lifting her up and then boom there. I'm like, okay, I would have liked a little bit more there. But I didn't think it was clever the way that they just were, I guess, being economical at that point. I mean, that whole sequence is really amazingly shot. I mean, they've literally got Jefferson's nose they're hanging on to. If he had nose hairs, it might have saved a life or two. Um and I was just funny seeing Martin Landau, too. I mean, last time I was picturing him was like an entourage. Is that something you'd be interested in? And all of a sudden, you see him as such a young man. It's always interesting when you see these older actors as young men. That's always jarring for me, too. Oh, yeah. That's why I think uh, someone like Steve Martin had it lucky by going gray in his 20s, because now he's just looked the same ever since, you know? <laughs> You're right. The prematurely graying Steve Martin. I love it. Jack Moffat of Hollywood Reporter wrote, Hitchcock is such a master of suspense that not many frames have passed before the audience has achieved complete identification with the characters and is knowing the thrill of vicarious fear and the shared pleasures of love and passion. Next film is called What's Up, Doc? Peter Bogdanovich, if you're watching TCM as I do, uh, they got a podcast coming out, The Plot Thickens. Can't wait to listen to it with Ben Mankiewicz, our friend. And Bogdanovich, a couple of his movies they showed last week. So Peter Bogdanovich is one of these 70s directors. He was known for three movies. All three were huge hits at the time. And then, unfortunately, things fizzled. Then he had a few bombs after that. Some personal tragedy struck. And now he's one of these film historians who was great friends with John Ford and Orson Welles. And if you're a Sopranos fan like me, you'd know him as Elliot, playing Lorraine Bracco's shrink in the show. So uh, he's certainly been around a long time and lived an interesting life. But What's Up Doc was when he was really knocking it out of the park. And it was about this. Two researchers come to San Francisco to compete for a research grant in music. 
The man seems a bit distracted. That was before he met a strange woman who has devoted her life to confusing and embarrassing him. At the same time, a woman has her jewels stolen and a government whistleblower arrives with stolen top secret papers. It stars Barbara Streisand. That's right. If you're thinking Barbara Streisand, I'll pass. I'm telling you right now, this is Barbara Streisand at her most appealing and likable. All right, this isn't Prince of Tides, Barbara Streisand. This is actually a really warm, funny, fetching character. Ryan O'Neill plays the uptight guy, Howard Bannister, who is uh, fiancé's Madeline Kahn. It's two, it's two. Loved her, of course, in Mel Brooks movies like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. And uh, they're together, but Barbara Streisand just keeps popping up and causing mayhem. And she's cute and sweet and charming, but she's a real pain in the thorn of Ryan O'Neill, who's just this uptight guy who's trying to get this important business done, and he's got his fiance as a stick in the mug, but let's just get going here. But instead, Streisand keeps sticking her nose in his business, and the term screwball comedy, it's, you know, it's so prehistoric at this point. I mean, this was the Preston Sturges comedies and Howard Hawks. And so what Bogdanovich did is, like many a great director, hey, I love movies of a certain era. Let me pay homage to them. So What's Up, Doc? was made in 1972, but could it just as easily have fit as 1942? And I was amazed at how funny it still is to this day. Lots of double entendres, coincidences, uh, visual psych eggs. There's a car chase which through San Francisco, which is about as well orchestrated as it can get. I mean, the French Connection is the heavyweight champion of car chases, Billy Freakins, when he came out in 1973. Yet the car chase in What's Up, Doc, it's ingenious the way that Bogdanovich plots the whole thing. He produced and directed the movie. He didn't write it. He was actually came up with a story for it. But it's got an excellent cast. I mean, Randy Quaid shows up in the movie. But Streisand really is the star of the film. And I was surprised. She's really, really good. Even at the end, there's a nod to love story. Ryan O'Neill says... Uh, Barbara Streisand says to him, you know, love means never having to say you're sorry. And he says, that might be the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote, the strength of a movie like this is that you don't have to believe too much for too long because there's something else happening. That's the key with a screwball comedy. There's just such pacing to it. It's just so fast and whip smart. And I think Bogdanovich, in making an homage to a genre which you don't see anymore, made a movie which is a worthy canon to that. Now, not everybody agreed with it. Jay Cox of Time Magazine. I love Jay Cox. Good friend of Scorsese, former film critic, then became a writer. Uh, he co-wrote Gangs of New York. Jay Cox said the result is a comedy made by a man who has seen a lot of movies, knows all the mechanics, and has absolutely no sense of humor. I mean, he just buried him. Neil Minow of Common Sense Media. This movie's a lot of fun. It does not come close to meeting the standards of the movies it is trying to emulate. Well, Bah humbug, Neil. I thought it was really funny and really enjoyable. One other Bogdanovich movie before we get to some reviews, and then our special guest, Johnny Smith, Paper Moon, also from Peter Bogdanovich. This film came out the year later, and it stars, again, Ryan O'Neill, and this time his daughter, Tatum O'Neill, playing a couple of cons in the 1930s. They're selling Bibles in the Bible Belt, and they're up to no good. Shot in black and white, beautifully shot, rustic landscape. I mentioned it to Ray Seahorn in terms of movies that I love that the way they look. But it's mainly notable because the fact Tatum O'Neill playing Addie Loggins won an Oscar. And that's going to be our Mount Rushmore here for great child performances because of Tatum O'Neill. Like I said, I thought it was a beautifully shot movie. Uh, Roger Ebert himself said a period piece that uses generic conventions only when they apply so that we see the depression through the eyes of characters who are allowed to be individuals. Whereas 
Listen, North by Northwest, I'm giving four Maple Leafs. What's up, Doc? I'd give three and a half Maple Leafs. In the case of Paper Moon, I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I didn't think it had the same zip and timing as well as the other Bogdanovich film. I get the fact that's a screwball comedy, so that's going at 100 miles an hour. I just didn't find this movie as funny. However, Tatum O'Neill is very charming and very sweet, and because of that, we're going to do the Mount Rushmore child acting performances. So a couple of Peter Bogdanovich films. If you haven't seen them, you can check out TCM, because Turner Classic Movies is where it's at. Entertainment news is coming up next along with our special guest, Johnny Smith. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. One thought I just want to close in here about Paper Moon. Peter Bogdanovich said he showed the script to Orson Welles. Before he showed it to me, he said, what do you think of the title Paper Moon? And Orson Welles says, I don't even need to read the script. That's an incredible title. That movie's going to be a hit. He said, that is a tremendous title. The way he came up with the title is he was listening to some music. Bogdanovich heard some like a 1940s, 1950s song. It's like a love song. It's talking about their love being like a paper moon. And that's how he came up with the title. So... If you ever wonder where the hell titles come from, and I agree with them, by the way, that is a great title. Orson Welles was right. You know what? Stick with that title. You're going to have a hit. Uh, Moving on. In terms of titles, lots of titles expected to be at the Venice Film Festival, and they're going to go forward with or without Cannes. How about this? Everything's being pushed to the fall or canceled entirely due to the coronavirus pandemic. The Venice Film Festival sticking to its plans for September. September 2nd of the 12th, they're going to stick with it right now. I mean, listen, strict social distancing regulation forced the Cannes Film Festival to postpone this year's event once to mid-July, and a second time indefinitely. But Venice says they're going to keep on going. In case you're wondering what's the importance of the Venice Film Festival, well, Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix, a film that I did not like, it actually won the Golden Lion, which is the best picture at the Venice Film Festival, and uh, therefore had a lot of momentum going into Oscar season, where it actually led all nominees for the most Oscar nominations from last year. Speaking of Joaquin Phoenix... He turned in a stunning lead performance in Joker, won Best Actor Oscar. But in an interview with Empire Magazine, Mother and Black Swan director Darren Aronofsky said his vision for a new take on Batman would have involved Phoenix, not Christian Bale. The Batman that was out before me was Batman and Robin, the famous one with the nipples and the bat suit. So I was really trying to undermine that and reinvent it. That's where my head went. The studio wanted Freddie Prinze Jr. And I wanted Joaquin Phoenix. I remember thinking, uh-oh, we're making two different films here. That's a true story. It was a different time. The Batman I wrote was definitely a way different type of take than they ended up making. Warner Brothers had tabbed 
uh, Aronofsky take a stab at a new direction for Batman. This is in the early 2000s after the success of his great film, Requiem for a Dream. Think about that, show. If Darren Aronofsky had made Batman rather than Christopher Nolan, and if it was Joaquin Phoenix, not Christian Bale, or even if the studio did it, which would have been Freddie Prinze Jr. Man, I can't see Freddie Prinze Jr. playing... Batman, but I would love, absolutely love to see an Aronofsky, Joaquin Phoenix Batman movie. And I think it should still be made. How about you? I agree. Listen, Aronofsky, when I love his work, I love it. Like Reckon for Jim. When I hate his work, I hate it. Like Mother. But there's no denying he's a hugely talented director. And sometimes big directors make big misses. But I think with a story like Batman and Joaquin Phoenix together... I'm with you. I think he'd be a better director than Todd Phillips. I think he'd rein in some of Phoenix's excess that we saw in Joker. So I'm with you. One other thought here right now. People are wondering who's winning right now the pandemic, meaning who is profiting right now. You keep thinking Netflix. Well, how about Hulu and Parasite? Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, a streaming monster, since making its exclusive debut April 8th on Hulu. The streaming giant confirming to IndieWire in just one week. Parasite has become the most streamed independent or foreign language film among all titles available on Hulu. Even more impressive, it's now the second most watched movie overall on Hulu ever among titles currently available to stream. What that means is that in one week, Parasite outstreamed the lifetimes of popular titles such as How to Train Your Dragon, A Quiet Place, Transformers The Last Night, and Creed Two all of which have been available to stream on Hulu for several months. I mean, that's great news for me, Joe. Right now, we're all at home. We hope things work out. But I love the fact that right now, people are watching the best film of last year, or at least the film that won Best Picture. 100%. And it, it, it's just good, like you said, it being a foreign film. It's not an easy watch like Creed Two or Transformers. So I'm glad people are watching something of a little bit more substance. How about this line here? Um, <laughs> the streamer event, they had this event for Hulu. They shut down some trolls on social media. One person wrote, it's not in English. No one wants to watch a movie that they literally have to read to understand what's going on. Hulu snapped back. If you don't want to read subtitles, you can always learn Korean. How's that for a clapback? <laughs> and now it's time for our special guest. Well, a real pleasure to bring in Johnny Smith. He's a Julius C. Budshaw Professor of Sports History and Associate Professor of History. You can follow him on Twitter, at SportsHistProf, H-I-S-T-P-R-O-F. He is the author of a terrific new book. It's called War Fever, Boston, Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War. And the reason I know Johnny is he wrote one of the best books I've read in years, which is called The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. That was written with Randy Roberts, as is this most recent book. My brother had sent it to me for a birthday present. It's a phenomenal book, so I highly recommend it, along with War Fever, which Johnny sent to me, which I have read, which we are going to get into now. Johnny, first and foremost, how are you coping? I know you're down there in Georgia where things appear to be opening up rather quickly. How are you dealing with this pandemic? Well, thanks for having me. You know, we're doing well. Um, I'm home with my wife and my baby girl and... You know, for us, it's about spending time together, going out for, for walks every day when the weather's nice. And, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, maintain my focus on my family. And when I have a, a moment to escape into my home office and do a little writing or talk to folks like you about war fever, it's, I think it's therapeutic for me. And I think we all need those kind of outlets. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. I appreciate you. And you're right. I, this podcast has definitely been a real escape for me. And it's been nice to, to dive into books. You know, as much as I love movies and obviously sports, which I'm missing greatly, I have loved all the reading I've been able to do. And your book really is fascinating because I was able to dive in and really appreciate 
uh, where we were a century ago. Let's start with that, just the timing of this. I mean, this is about the fall of 1918, when a fever gripped Boston, the streets emptying as paranoia about the deadly Spanish flu spread, and of course, the war was raging on, the enemy was lurking everywhere. This is awfully fortuitous timing, Johnny. You're talking about a pandemic that was 100 years ago, and now we're dealing with the same thing. What attracted you and Randy to the subject matter, and how on earth did you know this was going to happen to us again? <laughs> you know, we did not know there would be a, a pandemic coming. I would have warned everybody. Um, but in all seriousness, you know, we really were thinking at first about writing a book about Babe Ruth in 1918. Of course, that's the year that the Red Sox win the World Series against the Chicago Cubs. It's also, of course, the last year of World War One, And we were really interested in this intersection of how Major League Baseball and the Red Sox in particular were, were shaped by the Great War and, and the disruptions that the war produced for the city of Boston and for Major League Baseball and, and really shaping Ruth's life. But against that backdrop was the story of the Great Influenza. And Boston in, in, in the late August of 1918 is the epicenter of the outbreak in the United States. And so it's a fascinating story to think about how this pandemic that erupts in Boston um, and, and, and hit our military camps throughout the country and, you know, our soldiers fighting on, on the Western Front. Uh, but in Boston, the World Series is played in that first week of September when the influenza is spreading rapidly throughout the city. And so we thought this was an opportunity to look at these stories, how they intersect, and to reflect on an important moment in Boston history, baseball history, and American history. So there's three principal characters in which you focus on. Carl Mock, who's the German conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, accused of being an enemy spy, found his story particularly uh, poignant. Charles Whittlesley, a Harvard Law graduate who became an unlikely hero in Europe and the most famous baseball player of all time, who you mentioned, Babe Ruth. We'll get into Whittlesley and Muck in a second, but this, I have to quote from the book because this is absolutely going to get people to buy the book because I started reading this and I started laughing my head off. This is about Babe Ruth. This is on page 50. Harry Hooper is describing the fact that, Lord, he ate too much. He'd give a few big belches and roar, okay, boys, let's go. Consuming hot dogs and sodas and belching in a low, loud rumble was not the only thing he did in excess. He ate raw meat, seldom flushed toilets, treated farts as gifts to be admired, and enjoyed telling stories of his sexual exploits. Once Babe proudly announced from the shower, the ladies from Boston, they'd recognize this cock anywhere. I mean, Johnny, I mean, that is that is the stuff of high literature, right? Everyone knows Babe Ruth was a, you know, a Neanderthal, but that is that is great stuff. Well, thank you. I mean, the the Ruth tales are just endlessly entertaining. And of course, you get these stories from people like Harry Hooper, who played with Ruth, and they talked about how this was a guy who was completely uncivilized, you know, and of course he spent most of his youth in the equivalent of, of an orphanage, a, a youth home for boys, uh, St. Mary's in Baltimore. But that's, that's sort of, there's a sort of interesting insight, I think, about him, too, is that this is a guy who really never matured. You know, he, he played a boy's game his whole life, and he thought of himself like a boy. Um, you know, he lived for the moment. He lived this sort of carpe diem ethos, seize the day, live in the now. He was totally uninhibited, um, but he was transparent, you know, good, bad, or ugly. You saw Babe Ruth for who he was at all times. And, of course, I think what's fascinating about 1918 is that this is the moment 
when Ruth the Slugger begins to emerge. It's the moment when Americans and sports writers in particular begin to see him in a new light because as a result of the draft decimating the Red Sox roster, uh, by spring training, 11 players on the Red Sox team are either in the service or they're in a wartime industry, and the team needs hitters. Ruth had been a dominant left-handed pitcher, uh, but now Edward Barrow, the manager, recognizes, I've got to play Ruth on the days when he's not pitching, and he demonstrates this incredible ability to swing for the fences. And this was really remarkable. It was totally unconventional for a ball player like Ruth uh, to be swinging for the fences, to be swinging to hit a home run. Like, that was the strategy. He was all brawn at a time during the dead ball era when ball players like Ty Cobb, they're trying to bunt. They're chopping at the ball. And so it's, it's the seeds of a revolutionary moment in baseball, and it's transformed by Ruth and the war. More on his personal life here, because you're right, as an athlete, he was unlike anyone had ever seen before. And those home runs, you know, you still hear those expressions today, a Ruthian blast, because of the fact he was doing something nobody else was doing. He was dwarfing the totals. Like you said, you know, Ty Cobb's like a pea shooter compared to, to Babe Ruth, the way he's wielding his axe. But as far as his personal life, again, this is, this is high comedy. One willing woman seemed as good as the next. Marshall Hunt, a New York Daily News sportswriter, later observed that many of Ruth's escorts were really only appealed to a man who just stepped out of prison after serving a 15-year sentence. Working girls serviced him regularly and didn't complain if there was a teammate in the next bed or if Ruth munched peanuts or smoked a cigar during the act. For Ruth, women were sources of momentary pleasure easily discarded, left behind with the keys to a hotel room. I mean, I felt so sorry for his wife reading this while also thinking of this long lineage of athletes along the years. You and I know, listen, I love Muhammad Ali, and your book was tremendous, but obviously a womanizer. A lot of these guys, Michael Jordan, you name it, this is the life they led. But Babe at that time seemed to be taking it to a new level worse than anybody else at that time. <laughs> no question. Uh, he was not faithful to his wife. He was a womanizer. Um, in fact, there's a great story by one of his Yankee teammates that during the 20s. You know, Ruth brings this, this woman back to their hotel suite. And um, Babe is up all night making love to this woman. And so he would go into the bedroom and then he would come out and he would smoke a cigar and talk to his teammate. Then he'd go back into the room and continue, you know, uh, pleasuring this young lady. And so in the morning, Ruth comes out, he's all disheveled, and teammate says to him, God, how many times did you bed that woman? Ruth says, gosh, I don't know. Count the cigars. There were seven cigars in the ashtray, seven bucks. I mean, the guy was insatiable. Uh, that's the way he was. You know, he was constantly feeding himself, feeding his ego, trying to satisfy his, his urges, whether it was food or with women or with drink. That's who Babe Ruth was. Yeah, just certainly a man of, of enormous appetites. And you're right, you're setting this story within baseball and the war, and, and we'll get to Carl Mock in a second. But the part that I found particularly, I mean, it was almost hitting too close to home because it's what we're doing all right now, the cabin fever, is you talk about when the fever really grips Boston and the fact that people literally are scared to leave their homes and the casualties. Like looking at those numbers, Johnny, it's crazy in relation to population, how many people died. Paint the picture for us because every day I'm turning on CNN going, okay, yep, New York City, 200 thousand cases this many deaths like it's it's numbing but for boston at that time give us the numbers and the data because that was jarring when i was reading that section about just how much boston was impacted by the pandemic yeah so it's it's stunning to think about this um 
1918, there were about 103 million Americans uh, who lived in the United States. 675,000 Americans died from the influenza outbreak in 1918 and 1919. In Boston, uh, over the course of the fall of 1918, so roughly between September and December of 1918, 4,800 Bostonians died. In Philadelphia, it was even worse. 12,000 people in Philadelphia died from influenza. Now, one thing I would like to, to explain here is that how does this influenza outbreak even begin and how does it spread? Well, that's where the war story is so important. In early 1918, it becomes clear in the military camp to physicians that there's a new kind of flu. This is a virus that is pretty devastating. And by March of 1918 in Camp Funston, Kansas, the doctors there, they have thousands of sick soldiers, and they're not really sure what to make of it. But in the spring of 1918, military authorities, the government, they're not panicking, okay? But what happens is these soldiers begin carrying the virus from camp to camp throughout the United States. And then they take it with them when they board on ships, and they go to France. And so by the summer of 1918, what's happening is that the virus is spreading in the trenches, where our soldiers are fighting trench warfare. Then those soldiers and sailors, they bring it back to Boston in late August 1918 at the Commonwealth Pier in the harbor. And then what happens is those soldiers and sailors, some of them are so sick they have to be hospitalized, but others who may not realize they have it, they're asymptomatic, they march in a parade. They come into contact with civilians. Then there was a draft registration in Boston, 100,000 men in various halls throughout the city who are shaking hands, slapping each other on the back, having a drink, coughing, sneezing. The virus spreads to the civilian population. So, you know, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a medical doctor. But what I can tell you is that there are parallels and how these viruses spread. And that's the key, I think, is people start to say, okay, look for optimism. I'm going to read War Fever and see what happened 100 years ago and see how they got out of this. And I'm sure the economy, of course, was hit hard back then, just as it is being now. But social distancing, I'm sure they didn't have that turn back then, Johnny, but that was going to be successful. And that's ultimately what turned the tide here. And that's what changed things. But I felt particularly jarring just reading that section where people were afraid to leave their homes. As you said to me off air, at least you can go for a walk with your wife, your daughter. I can take my kids, literally play catch in the backyard, shoot hoops in the garage. Like at this time, it was so gripping. People were literally terrified to leave their homes. So that same hysteria is something that we're dealing with now. Absolutely. It was so bad in Boston that they ran out of coffins. You know, there were bodies that were stacked up on the streets. I mean, it's just, when you think about that imagery, it is stunning to imagine how desperate people were. And, of course, then as now, the hospitals were overwhelmed. They were not equipped to deal with the number of desperate patients that were showing up. And, and this, this virus in 1918 was, I mean, it was killing people in ways that, physicians had never seen before. And yet there was this response from local officials that in some cities was delayed, that they didn't want to alarm people. So they tried to manage the truth, manage the information, which only proved more devastating. And in fact, you know, historians who have studied the pandemic of 1918, 1919, 
what they've identified is that the cities that were most aggressive, the cities that were able to uh, enact these closure orders, telling people, okay, we're shutting down restaurants, we're shutting down bars, schools are closing, we're not having church services, those actions, it saved lives. And in fact, the cities that acted more aggressively, that were able to do that sooner than later, were able to mitigate fatalities and protect people. Now, on the flip side of that, in Boston, for example, um, a few weeks after the World Series had ended, the city enacts a closure order. Now, by that time, you have hundreds of people in Boston who have already died, thousands infected. They would have this closure order in place for about a month. When they lifted the closure order in late October of 1918, health officials warned the public. They said, you can go outside of your homes and... But be, be, be aware that this virus has not dissipated, it has not disappeared. You can still be vulnerable to getting sick. Well, of course, people were so eager to go back to the saloons and back to the dance halls um, that they didn't listen. And what we'll see is that in the aftermath of the armistice, which took place on November 11, 1918, people were celebrating in the streets and there were parades and everywhere. There were, that would fuel another wave, a third wave of the pandemic that goes into 1919. Let's talk about Karl Muck, because he's a fascinating character. And I think this, again, is timely, Johnny, because it talks about xenophobia and the fact this guy's a symphony conductor, you know, German lineage, and Babe Ruth, for that matter, was of German lineage. I never really thought about that. George Herman Ruth, of course, and then he had the name of the Babe, and the Babe just stuck forever. But, you know, I think about the way German Americans at that time were demonized and treated, and you think of people today... Um, you know, whether it's Arab Americans or whatever enemy that we seem to be fighting at the time, the way that sometimes xenophobia and the, the fires of racism can be stoked. I feel Muck's story is very interesting, the way that he's being treated, the way he was being viewed. And again, that parallel to today. Speak a little bit about Muck and his, uh, his journey. Yeah, Karl Muck is a fascinating figure. You know, his story is a reminder that the war wasn't just being fought against the Germans in Europe. It was being fought in the United States against Germans and German-Americans. And so he had been a famous, world-renowned conductor, the face of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And in 1917, he and the members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, they go to Providence for this concert. And supposedly, he is asked to perform the Star Spangled Banner, to conduct the Star Spangled Banner. Now, he doesn't know that this request has come in. It went to these other officials of the BSO. But after the concert is played, the newspapers in Providence, they excoriate him. They claim that he refused to play the Star Spangled Banner. He's anti-American. And this launches a scandalous investigation from newspaper writers, but more devastating to Muck. It's the beginning of an investigation from the Justice Department. The Bureau of Investigation begins looking into his activities, scrutinizing his relationships, his friendships. And they find that, you know, he had a close relationship with the Kaiser. He was very good friends with the German ambassador to the United States, uh, Johann von Bernstorff, who was really the spy master operating in America at that time. And so what happens is that after this, this concert in Providence, the newspapers, they are generating this anti-German hysteria against him. He becomes the villain in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt, the former president, says that Muck, who refused to play the Star Spangled Banner, should be sent to an internment camp. 
And that becomes this dominant message that in light of the war and the propaganda that's being turned out by American newspaper writers and the government, he's treated as a spy. Well, the reality was there was no evidence that showed that Karl Muck and his relationship with the ambassador from Germany was actually a spy. And in fact, in reading the documents from the Bureau of Investigation, Randy Roberts and I saw very clearly that the Bureau at one point had said there is no evidence that he is acting uh, on behalf of the German government. But there were still agents in Boston who didn't believe it. They refused to believe it. And so they continued to investigate him. And what they discovered is that Karl Muck, like Babe Ruth, was a womanizer. And he had a lover who was a singer in the Boston Symphony Orchestra named Rosamond Young. And in these love letters, these passionate letters, Muck made all these anti-American statements. And at that time, that was enough evidence for the government to say that he is an enemy alien, he is dangerous, and he should be sent to an internment camp. It's crazy. As harrowing as that story is, the war passages are particularly strong as well. Uh, this is from page uh, 256. First Lieutenant Frederick Tillman of the 307th and a couple of scouts stumbled in the outer reaches of the pocket. He was overwhelmed by the stench. It smelled like a glue factory. There were dead and decomposing soldiers everywhere, though it was too dark to get a good look. He tripped into a shell hole. A man cried at him like a puppy, and his comrade lunged at Tillman with his bayonet. Tillman saw that they were Americans. I'm looking for Major Whittlesley. I don't give a damn who you are and what you want, the man replied. You just step on my buddy again, and I'll kill you. I mean, those war passages, I mean, we, as tough as it is right now, Johnny, I read someone say the other day, hey, don't say we're going through a war right now because nobody can say that unless you've actually lived through a war. And reading mm. your passages, realize how harrowing the journey was for Whittlesey and so many others, uh, um, obviously, fighting the Great War. Yeah, you know, Charles Whittlesey, Harvard Law grad, he's not someone that you would have imagined would have become a war hero. He's an attorney. He's an intellectual, he's scholarly, he's inward-looking. Um, he wasn't married. He didn't have children. He had few friends. He was not someone looking for fame. But he becomes seen as a hero of the war because in October of 1918, he leads this unit that becomes known in the press as a lost battalion, this unit of about 600 men, uh, only about 200 of them survive after being pummeled by the Germans. And it's the, it's the way that Whittlesley was able to lead when they were being just hammered under fire by the Germans, that he was courageous, that he was performing all sorts of remarkable deeds to save his fellow soldiers, to keep their, their, them focused at a time when they went over 100 days without food and water. And they come out of this moment, the lost battalion, you know, they break through the German lines. And when Whittlesley comes home, he's carrying the, the memories of the war with him. He can't escape them. He definitely had what we would call PTSD. He's haunted by these, these memories of the war. You know, think about what these men experienced in the trenches, seeing your, your fellow man, your, your friend, your brother, you know, dying right in front of you, you know, sitting there in the trenches, you know, sick men, dead men, men with lost limbs. Well, he had nightmares. Charles Wilsey comes back and he has nightmares. And it's as if he can't escape the war because everywhere he goes, a veteran administration hospital, some kind of Red Cross event, uh, 
People are asking him about the war. You know, mothers are asking them, how did my son die? Uh, wives are asking him, how did my husband die? And he tries to give them a story that they can hold on to, something that might give them some comfort. But nobody could comfort Charles Whittlesley. It didn't matter that he had won the Congressional Medal of Honor or that people were writing about him and shaking his hand and praising him. He wasn't interested in any of that. But the fact is that the government wanted to use Whittlesley, that in the moment when Woodrow Wilson is campaigning for the United States to join the League of Nations, the government needs Whittlesley. You know, Whittlesley is in favor of the League of Nations. He abhorred war. He said, you know, wars should never exist. I don't want to see Americans join in the fight of another war. And so he gets behind the Woodrow Wilson's idealistic vision for the League of Nations to become this peacekeeping body. Of course, the U.S. does not actually end up joining the League of Nations. But ultimately, for Whittlesley, this war is something that he can't escape. He can't put it behind him. When he closes his eyes, he can see the barrage of fire as if he's living there on the Western Front all over again. And it becomes just too much to bear. Great stuff from Johnny Smith. You can follow him on Twitter at Sports Hist Prof, H I S T Prof. Of course, he is a great history professor. And I mentioned his book, The Wonderful Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Also, has written The Rise of Mickey Mantle, which was with Randy Roberts, and The Sons of Westwood, John Wooden, UCLA, and the Dynasty That Changed college basketball. So clearly a huge sports guy, and hopefully we get sports back sooner rather than later, Johnny. I'm sure you, like many right now, are suffering as am I. I have one other question. Since you are a history guy, and I'm such a big movie guy, one of my favorite historical movies, listen, I could ask you about Glory or something like that, but I want to ask you about a movie which I love, which is called Gangs of New York. Martin Scorsese's film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know how much you've studied that era of history, but is that accurate to that time? Because I find that whole story, the five points, again, to be very timely today, dealing with xenophobia and the way that violence really kind of uh, made New York City what it was? You know, I haven't necessarily studied the accuracy of the film, but what I can say is that the themes, the context are, in fact, accurate. You know, there was certainly, in that period, in the early 18, in the, in the 1860s, uh, tensions between white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and Irish-Americans. And in fact, in my sports history course at Georgia Tech, I played the clip where Leonardo DiCaprio gets into a, a bare-knuckle fight in that saloon, right? Uh, and the reason I played that clip is I want to show the students how did bare-knuckle prize fighting become such an important part of the urban culture in the mid to late 19th century. And so I try to show them that, you know, it was spontaneous. This was a sport, a blood sport of the urban underclass working-class men, unattached men who inhabited the saloons and brothels of that era. It was not a regulated sport yet. And in fact, um, in the late 19th century, boxing or prize fighting uh, was outlawed. It was an illegal sport. It was not something that you were supposed to be doing. Now, of course, the local authorities could be bought off and men encountered these kind of matches all the time. And what drove its popularity was, I think, a couple of things. Number one, is these ethnic rivalries, right? For a saloon keeper or a promoter in the late 19th century, you got people invested in a boxing match or a brawl by labeling the fighters. So if you were um, a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and you were from a certain neighborhood, you would root for a fighter who reflected your heritage and your values. 
If you were Irish uh, or Irish-American and you lived in a certain neighborhood in Boston, you were invested in the outcome of that match because the fighters became cultural symbols of various groups. So on the one hand, it's the, it's the ethnic and uh, tensions during the period that fuels the popularity of boxing in the late 19th century, but it also speaks to the, the, the rituals of manhood and violence and how for so many of these working-class men, you proved your manhood by being able to beat the crap out of another man, and that's partly what helped separate these men in their neighborhoods. It was their reputation, how they were known in the neighborhood. That's great stuff, Johnny. I could talk to you for hours, certainly on uh, on all issues of history and sports. Professor Smith, our special guest today, tell people where can they pick up the book, War Fever, Boston Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War. You know, I hope that, that they pick it up by ordering uh, local bookstores, acapella books here, a local bookstore in Atlanta has it. Of course, the major retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, also are carrying the book. And I really appreciate you having me on today. Of course, man. Hopefully we'll get through this sooner rather than later. And stay safe there in Georgia. I know things are opening up uh, maybe a little sooner than some would have liked. But uh, hang in there, man. I hope people love the book. I thought it was terrific. And uh, I look forward to the next book. Seriously, you put together a pretty good uh, career here so far. Keep it going. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you so much. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for a Mount Rushmore of child performances inspired by the fact Tatum O'Neill won an Academy Award for Paper Moon and she was just nine years of age. We take a look at this list. I mean, there's lots of great kid performances over the years. I have to think of the one that jumps out right away, which is Haley Joel Osmond in The Sixth Sense. That's right. I see dead people or as I would say over highlights of Michael Red, the former Buck, I see red people. Regardless, Haley Joel Osment for me has got to be in there. I love Jodie Foster's performance in Taxi Driver. She was only 14 years of age playing in the film a 12-year-old prostitute. I mean, she's incredible in that movie, so I've got to get Jodie Foster in there. I mean, I really want to get Tatum O'Neill in there for Paper Moon since I just saw it, but honestly, does it get more iconic than Judy Garland? How can you have a list of top performances not have Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz? That's right. There's no place like home. And as far as one more spot, although I would lean towards a guy like Leonardo DiCaprio and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Linda Blair for The Exorcist, Jacob Tremblay for Room, but I'm going to go with that little ingenue, Abigail Bresden for Little Miss Sunshine. She's so funny and so plucky. Here's a song that my grandpa taught me, incredible final scene. Honorable mention to Christian Bale also for Empire of the Sun. God, there's some good ones here. Natalie Portman, Leon, the professional. But instead, my list is this, Haley Joel Osment. Jodie Foster, Judy Garland, and Abigail Breslin. Joe? Well, first and foremost, I'll agree with you for Judy Garland. I, I cannot imagine a different actress in that role, so I'll put her on for The Wizard of Oz. I'm also going to go with Linda Blair for The Exorcist and Love her her being possessed. Um, and then my sleeper pick, I'm going to go with Elsie uh, Fisher for the Bo Burm-directed movie, 8th Grade. I loved her in that movie so much. And then, to round it out, Macaulay Culkin, Home Alone, yes. but more importantly, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. That <laughs> is my Mount Rushmore. 
I had a feeling. I'm looking at this list going, how is Joe not going to leave Macaulay Culkin off the list? That's <laughs> that's a good call. That may be as iconic as Judy Garland, The Wizard of Oz. Imagine anybody else with Macaulay Culkin. That's a good call by you. Your list is better than mine. I can't not have Macaulay Culkin on mine. Good list. <laughs> As far as some other performances, by the way, Brooklyn Prince is great in The Florida Project, uh, that Willem Dafoe movie, Saoirse Ronan in Atonement, uh, Jean-Pierre Leoud in The 400 Blows, the true foe movie. Pretty good list here. If you like it, you dislike it, let us know. Cinephile Pod, Adnan S. Ferk. Now it's time for Total Recall. Recall. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. I want to keep this a little more recent, at least for this one. So films from 2015, which was the 2016 Oscars, a great film, especially if you're a journalism major like me. Spotlight won Best Picture. What else was nominated that year, Joe? The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max, Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and Room. I kept, I always kept laughing the fact Bridge of Spies, I thought it was a metaphorical title. It's actually literal. Like the movie ends with a bridge of spies. I could never get over that. In some ways, it was a disappointment because you're the talent involved with Spielberg. I mean, the Coen brothers wrote the script, but I always was stunned it was nominated for Best Picture. That's crazy to me. I don't think it's one of their best movies. The Big Short is awfully inventive and very funny. Brooklyn, I think, is overrated. Sorry, Dan Stanzik. The Martian, I mean, laughingly, the, the Golden Globes had it nominated for Best Original Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. It was not particularly a funny movie. The Revenant, some may argue for. I thought it was a little long, I'll be honest. Room, claustrophobic, and really expertly acted. But my pick has got to be Mad Max Fury Road. I think it's the greatest action movie ever. Doug Mitchell and George Miller, incredible movie. It actually won the most Oscars that year, which as I said to somebody, okay, fine, it's technical categories, but if you win the most, you are the best. So Mad Max Fury Road, Joe, I would have lost my mind if it won Best Picture. I was thrilled Spotlight won, but Mad Max Fury Road I could watch once a week. Me too. I, I have to agree with you here. This this year, as I look over the, the winners, it, it, it's puzzling now, given retrospect, how Mad Max didn't win and how rewatchable that movie is compared to a lot of the other movies on the list. But I'll go with Mad Max for sure. Yeah, so best director was Alejandro Inarritu for The Revenant. And I'm like, hang on a second, dude. You already won for Birdman. Okay, I get that. A lot of long takes, different movie. How the hell does George Miller not win for Mad Max Fury Road? Again, this this should have been more than a lock than any other category. Miller should have won best director even before Mad Max won best picture. But for the sake of amusement, give us the other nominees. Adam McKay, The Big Short, George Miller, Mad Max Fury Road, Lenny Abrahamson for Room, and Tom McCarthy for Spotlight. I mean, listen, I love McCarthy. Spotlight, though, directorially. I mean, visually, it's not a particularly strong film. It obviously should have been George Miller. Joe, I'm sure you agree. So best actor was Leo for The Revenant. Who else was nominated? Brian Cranston for Trumbo, Matt Damon for The Martian, Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs, and Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl. Never could get through The Danish Girl. Uh, Cranston, I did watch. I mean, I love him, but Trumbo was not a particularly strong movie. Matt Damon was fine in The Martian. Listen, Leo's a great actor. And I mean, listen, the scene with the bear, I guess, uh, I guess that alone should win you an Oscar. So what the hell? And he never won. And it was obviously a career lifetime achievement award. So I'm fine with Leo winning. But Fassbender, really good in Steve Jobs. Aaron Sorkin, terrific script. And Fassbender nails the fact that Jobs was, you know, just such an unlikable guy, yet very smart and very controlling and manipulative. But I'm fine with the fact that Leo won. Lifetime achievement award. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, if you're going with him, I will definitely go with Leo, even if it was more of a lifetime achievement thing. Best actress was the right choice. It was Brie Larson for Room. What else was nominated? Kate Blanchett for Carol, Jennifer Lawrence for Joy, Charlotte Rampling, 45 years, Cersei Ronan, Brooklyn. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan's been nominated, I think, five times now, which is amazing considering how young she is, but I don't think Brooklyn was uh, particularly memorable. Jennifer Lawrence, this was a joke of a nomination. A joy's just about a woman in a mop. Like, how the hell is she getting nominated? That is brutal to me. Kate Blanchett, always fantastic. Uh, a woman in love with another woman at a time when you couldn't do that. Carol's about repressed love, beautifully shot, Todd Haynes, etc. But Brie Larson knocked out of the park her, uh, really, arrival in Hollywood playing a woman trapped with her son. Heartbreaking movie. She was great. I agree with you. Brie Larson, for sure, for room. But also acting opposite of another great child performance in Jacob Tremblay. So I give her props for that too. So Brie Larson for Room. Great point. Best Supporting Actor was a stunner. Mark Rylance went for Bridges Spies playing Rudolph Abel. He had won nothing prior to that. Go back and check that year. Everyone was thinking, oh, Sylvester Stallone's going to win an Oscar for acting playing Rocky Balboa in Creed. He doesn't win. Rylance wins. Huge upset. What else was nominated? Christian Bale for The Big Short. Tom Hardy, The Revenant, Mark Ruffalo, Spotlight, and Sylvester Stallone, Creed. Rylands was the best part of Bridge of Spies, which is saying something, considering the Coen brothers wrote the script, Spielberg wrote the script, excuse me, Spielberg directed it, Tom Hanks was in it, and yet Rylands was tremendous. You know, would it make a difference? I mean, he's so good, so understated, but I think it should have been Ruffalo. Playing Michael Resendez, when the film wins Best Picture, I always like when one of the actors gets recognized, his performance was excellent, playing a guy who has no life, a dogged reporter, that whole ensemble, him and Michael Keaton and uh, Rachel McAdams, I mean, they're all wonderful, so it would have been nice if Ruffalo won on behalf of them, and I think he's been a great actor, given great performances over the years. I wanted Ruffalo to win. Yeah, that's a good pick. I I really like Christian Bale in The Big Short, but I just didn't think he was in the movie long enough for him to win Best Supporting Actor. But I'll go with Sylvester Stallone for Creed. Loved that movie. Loved that reiteration of the story. So I'll go with Sylvester Stallone. All right. Best Supporting Actress was Alicia Vikander for The Danish Girl. What else was nominated? Jennifer Jason Lee, The Hateful Eight, Rooney Mara, Carol, Rachel McAdams, Spotlight, and Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs. Never seen the Danish girl, so I don't mean to slam Vikander. I don't know how good she was or wasn't good. Winslet always solid and Steve Jobs. Rooney Mara, yes, touching and Carol. I really am pulling for McAdams, Canadian. Again, I would have liked to have seen Spotlight win something for acting. It would have been really nice if Ruffalo and McAdams won. But honestly, Jennifer Jason Lee is hilarious in the, the Hateful Eight. The amount of abuse she takes at the hands of Kurt Russell, just how filthy she is, diving into Tarantino's dialogue, rarely... You know, is that kind of a performance get rewarded? I would have liked to see Jennifer Jason Lee win an Oscar. I agree with you, especially in a year where it didn't seem like the Hateful Eight was really nominated for any of the big categories. I would like for somebody from that cast and from that fantastic movie to have won something. So Jennifer Jason Lee for sure. I agree. Two more to go. Best original screenplay. This one was a no-brainer. Tom McCarthy, Joss Singer. If you like Spotlight, you know it's a tremendous script. And they won for best original screenplay. What else was nominated? Bridge of Spies. Ex Mahina, Inside Out, Straight Out of Compton. 
I like seeing the Inside Out nomination. I mean, that is a, a wonderful story and a really, really smart, inventive script about you know how different emotions are in a child's head. I mean, it, it really is a great script by Pete Doctor. So if it wasn't Spotlight, I would have voted for Inside Out. Ex Machina definitely has some really amusing moments. If you like sci-fi, it's out there. Bridge of Spies, I mean, that's a token nomination. The Coen brothers have made many, many other great movies, and that script isn't particularly notable. But I would have gone with Spotlight. Inside Out, pretty good, though. Yeah, I think I'll... Uh... It, it spotlight is the given, but I'm going to go with Ex Mahina and give that a little bit of love. I thought it was a super original script, and I really, really liked it. And Alex Garland, for that being his debut film, thoroughly enjoyed it. Definitely Ex Mahina. Great dance sequence in there as well. Uh, best adapted <laughs> screenplay goes to the big short Adam McKay, Charles Randolph. Again, I think this was the correct choice. What else was nominated? Brooklyn, Carol, The Martian, and Room. I mean, maybe Room, just because it is such a claustrophobic story and the dialogue is really penetrating and it's a surprising story with where it takes you. But I think Larson kind of took the one there. I'm with you, Joe, in terms of spreading it around. Would have been nice to see the big short win one. So they did win one for Best Adapted Screenplay. Makes sense to me. This is some very convoluted you know, theories about finance and such, and they made it very accessible. I mean, you got Margot Robbie in a bathtub. I mean, there was, it was smart the way they did this to try to make it accessible. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I really liked The Martian too, but one of the things that kind of annoyed me about the movie is that there's this huge crisis going on and no one seems to like be mad or upset about it. You know, like Matt Damon handled it very, oh, this is really great. Hey, now I'm going to grow potatoes. You know what I mean? Um, And so I didn't think the script had enough. There was a lot of conflict, but I don't think the character's lived the conflict. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I liked it, but I'm with you. I don't think it was... uh... But I just didn't think it was one of the best movies of that year. So I I would agree with you on that. All right. That is Cinephile. Thank you so much for checking us out. As always, please go to Apple Podcasts, Overcome the Haters, and give us some love there. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts there. You can rate and review. This time we looked back because it was the 125th episode of Cinephile. But next week, we got some new movies coming out. There's a new movie coming out on Netflix starring Chris Hemsworth, action movie. So hopefully, I'll see that this weekend. And Bad Education is a movie on HBO uh, starring Allison Janney and Hugh Jackman. So I'm going to review those movies for all of you next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.